funny listening to this, those frogs uh, chirping. I was reminded of a famous haiku, short poem by Japanese poet Basho. And it's one of the most famous haikus. And it goes, a small pond frog jumps splash small pond frog jumps splash just like that that simple that ordinary the active simple observation without a whole lot of story or overlay or drama or whatever on top of it. Which is very different than our retreat. (laughs) Very different than our experience. If it were that simple, we probably wouldn't have retreats. So I want to unpack a little today uh, some of the things, some of the things that you've been speaking about in groups, some of the things that visit you in your mind, in your body, in your heart, in your life, that make our existence more challenging, more turbulent, more stressful. So we come here on retreat. I imagine you had all kinds of expectations to be happy, to feel peaceful, to be clear, to have a bright mind, to find ease. And that may not be your experience. You may be feeling distractible, irritated, restless, bored, sleepy, craving something other than what's happening here because there's not a lot happening except challenges. It's not all that's here. There's also beauty and joy and peace. And, but a lot of the time, and certainly what we've heard in groups, is you know, a lot of challenging things. Would you agree? Has this been a really easy ride so far? <laughs> right. So why is that? Beautiful place, beautiful buildings, nice people, great food, beautiful nature. What's going on? So this is from the Buddha. He said, luminous is this mind. Mind is mind and heart. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but is obscured by the visiting tendencies of mind and heart that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so they don't cultivate their mind and heart. Luminous is this mind brightly shining and it is free of these tendencies that can obscure it. This the meditator understands and so for them there is cultivation and training of the mind and the heart. So our practice here on the cushion, in the retreat, in life, is to understand what is it that obscures well-being, peace, freedom, ease? Why is it that it's hard to sustain any 
moments of happiness and joy and peace. Because that's what we're seeking. We're seeking peace, well-being, ease. So it, it behooves us to notice, well, what is it? Why is it that it's hard to find and abide? So we work with these tendencies, and I'm going to elucidate some of them, and we'll see how many I get time to describe today. There's so many, there's only so much time. I'll have you here till dinner, till uh, bedtime if I went to all of them. Um, so there's a phrase, the greater obstacles, the greater the awakening. The greater the suffering, the greater the transformation. And as much as we might lament and resist and avoid and reject our struggles, our tendencies, our habits, when we bring awareness to them, they're often the very fruit, the very, the, the very manure that allows us to understand, to open our hearts, to awaken. It's also what gets us to practice, right? How many of you are here because of your stress and uh, suffering? Probably a lot of you, right? Certainly I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have started the path if I wasn't an unhappy, confused, angry, uh, self-hating young man. That, that, that grist uh, had me searching. Like, wh- wh- why am I so unhappy? What, what the hell's going on? And certainly... I hadn't learned much up to that point that gave any resolution to that. Didn't really address it. So the, one of the ironies as we cultivate mindfulness, as we develop awareness, is we begin to see so many of our habits and tendencies that are not so constructive, not so helpful. And sometimes when people start meditating or come to retreat, I hear it's like, I don't know, but I, th- I, th- I thought I was doing all right in my life. And then I, I, I mean, meditation, all I see is, you know, thoughts and reactions and problems. And I think meditation is making me worse. I think it's bad for my health. But actually what's happening is just revealing our habits and tendencies, which we normally don't see because we're busy and, you know, focused on other things. So I like to quote this piece of writing from uh, an archbishop, a a medieval bishop, Francois Fenelon, and who uh, is writing about light, inner light, but really light, light is the metaphor for awareness. And he says, as light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings and thoughts, this is medieval uh, literature, like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. I wouldn't go that far, but you know, you know, some stuff comes up that we see. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. We must, we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them grows brighter. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. We only perceive our malady when the cure begins. In that, 
when we see the very things that are stressful and problematic, these, these visiting tendencies, it's, the, it's by shining the light of awareness on them that we can come to know them, come to understand them, come to un- understand how they arise, how they release. And so even though, so often in a retreat particularly, it, the, that light brings up all kinds of stuff that was sort of out of the of our peripheral vision. And, um, and that's partly what we wrestle and work with. But know and trust that in that working and seeing and revealing that we actually can transform. So, um, so we come with expectations and hopes of certain experience. And as we've been pointing to, it's not about attaining and gaining experience. It's about developing wisdom, developing insight, developing kindness and compassion, learning how to develop a wise relationship with, with life, with what's happening in our body and our heart and our relationships and our mind. So with mindfulness, we're doing the very simple but counterintuitive and radical act of turning towards whatever's arising in our experience. Generally in our lives, we like to turn towards that which is pleasant. And the nice sunny day and the sounds of the birds and the flowers and grasses. And, and we tend to want to avoid and run away any, from anything that's difficult, challenging, painful. And on retreat, we don't exactly lock the doors, but metaphorically we do. And we say, sit, be with it, and deal, basically. <laughs> um, show up and be with your experience. Be with your mind and your heart and what, you know, both the joy and the sorrow and hang out there, right? And in our lives, you know, we just whip out the phone, you know, go to the fridge, call somebody, you know, we have a whole, you know, we live in a society that's perfected the art of distraction. Right? Here we've, we're releasing all of that and saying, no, that doesn't work so well. What works is actually sitting in the fire of your experience, feeling it, seeing it, meeting it with kindness, with curiosity, with investigation. And we can learn and transform. And that's how we find freedom and peace right in the middle of our lives, right in the middle of the most painful back pain or the deepest sadness or the most distractible, irritated mind. So what we're doing here is really alchemy. We're transforming the raw material of our experience, our body, our heart, our mind, our life, which can often feel hard, heavy, challenging, confusing, painful, and transforming that with awareness and compassion so it becomes the vehicle for our awakening, our understanding, and therefore greater empathy and compassion for any and everybody else who's going through similar but different stuff.
So I was on a long retreat. So just a little about my background. So I started, as, a, as you know, I started meditating young. And um, I was kind of gung-ho about practice and um, uh, spent, really spent the first 10 or 15 years of my life um, doing intensive meditation, retreats, traveling to Asia, studying with different teachers. Um, and uh, it was really kind of... Uh, driven to awaken. And what I didn't understand in, is as part of that drive, um, the psyche has an has a innate, innate drive to heal and integrate. What I was, had been out of touch with in that, you could say part of my spiritual path was wanting to transcend, wanting to awaken, which shorthand in, in parentheses was avoid all the messy, painful stuff of life you know, sort of leap over that to this, this island of awakening, f- happiness and freedom, and hopefully somehow that will resolve all the pain, body, and all the other emotional, gritty life stuff that I hadn't really uh, uh, faced. That was somewhat conscious, but mostly unconscious. Um, and slightly caricature, but you get the, you get the idea. And I was um, in the middle of doing some long retreats and uh, at the end of one of those, uh, it was a three month retreat and, um, uh, and I was going from there right into uh, ordaining as a monk in Burma um, to support my practice in a more full-time intensive way. And, at, and, and actually in the middle of that retreat, uh, some very deep layers of early pre-verbal trauma came up that I hadn't experienced before, I was unaware of. And as uh, these kind of unexpected uh, surfacing of trauma can happen, completely threw me, uh, uh, completely threw me, it flattened me actually. It was hard to practice, it was hard to meditate, it was just very, very deep layers of uh, pain and confusion and uh, despair and a whole series of difficult states unfolded from that. Um, and I was nomadic at the time. Normally, when you when when you have that much uh, distress and uh, trauma comes up, usually a silent retreat is not the best place to be. And um, uh, basically, back then you were kind of kicked out and told to go home. And I didn't have a home, so I stayed at the retreat, which was the worst place for me to be because I stayed in this very regressed, traumatized place. I ended up getting chronic fatigue. Uh, I went back to England to convalesce with some friends, a friend's house, and um, it was very, very uh, challenging. Uh, long, dark night of the soul, except it was, I wish it was a night, but it was dark night of the soul, not a night, it's actually a long period of confusion in your life. And um, what I did learn from that, many, many things, it, it completely transformed my life. I didn't end up going to ordain in Burma, for better or worse. And um, what it did do was uh, blow open uh, my heart and it really awoke a, a very profound access to compassion, which I had previously not really been able to access. My heart, I would say, had been somewhat closed and frozen and it, it, it birthed both a deep compassion for the pain I was going in, but also a deep compassion for the fact that all, for the pain that we all go through, whatever our particular uh, experience and flavor is, and that that since that time, which was about twenty years ago, now it's it's really, 
radically shifted the compass of my life and my practice to orienting around how do we show, how do we integrate and become a whole human being? How do we integrate the heart? How do we live with kindness and compassion in the midst of whatever stuff we're going through? And so um, this is part of the alchemy of practice. I'm not saying you have to go through the doorway of trauma that I did, but you have to go through the doorway of yourself and your life and your experience. And the more that we can bring awareness and kindness to that, the more we learn and the easier that journey is. And then from that, beautiful alchemical things arise. This is from a poet, Rashani. She writes, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So I find this poem very uh, profound. She's talking about the very hard places that we move through break us open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole, already whole. So, um, one of the things that mindfulness reveals and supports is, um, or many things, but it allows us to turn towards and meet and open to experience. And in that turning and opening uh, provides a a greater sense of choicefulness. Something I was talking a lot about today in the groups. Generally, we live in more of a reactive, uh, uh, knee-jerk, reactive state in our mind. We run towards pleasure, we run away from pain, and uh, in that, don't necessarily learn or transform. So from a psychological perspective, what mindfulness does is it gives us a response flexibility, allows us to be more responsive and attuned to what's happening. Like when when that trauma arose for me, as flattened as I was, the only thing that was left, and I didn't have much resources except the, the things that the two qualities remained for a significant period of time was awareness and compassion. And I wasn't trying to be mindful and I wasn't trying to be kind. It just that's what was there as the fruit of having spent a lot of time done doing mindfulness and meta practice. So this phrase that was misattributed to Viktor Frankl. I think is a lovely uh, description of how mindfulness gives us a particular capacity to respond. Uh, The phrase goes, between stimulus and response there is space. In that space, which is a space of awareness, space of mindfulness, lies your power and freedom to choose your response, theoretically. In your response lies your growth and happiness. 
That's, that's the gift of this practice. Maybe you're sitting with physical pain. Maybe you're sitting with boredom or restlessness. Maybe you're sitting with confusion in your mind. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. With, when we experience those things, there's a pause in which we can feel and open and be curious and understand and develop some wisdom in how to relate to those things. A friend of mine who actually my, my uh, former, uh, former t- first teacher and now friend um, was, who was a monk in Thailand and I think this is a story that illustrates this idea of response flexibility. Um, he was a monk in Thailand and as often as the case in Thailand there's um, the monasteries are refuges for animals this, this, and this monastery had a lot of dogs they're often barking, and one day there was two uh, dogs barking furiously, running across the courtyard. And um, he was happened to be looking and seeing what was going on. And the dogs were chasing a snake, and there's lots of poisonous snakes in Thailand in the forest. And the forest, the monastery was in the forest, and the snake was run, you know, trying to get away from the dogs and find a safe place. And went to the edge of the courtyard, and there was a monk meditating by the sitting by a tree. And the snake thought, that's a good idea, and went straight up his robes. <laughs> you know, because the robes look like a tent, right? You're sitting there like that, and they're robed, and this, this poisonous snake goes up the monk's robes. And the monk's meditating, probably terrified, but meditating. And the best response is to stay still, right? The more you move, the more likely the snake's going to strike. The dogs are barking furiously at him because they know that snake's under his robes. And um, he just stays there meditating, meditating, meditating. Eventually the dogs get bored, they go away. Eventually the snake feels safe, comes out and goes into the forest. That's response flexibility. (laughs) So, unlikely that you will have a snake. uh, Well, we did have a snake actually. A couple of weeks ago, I was leading a nature retreat where I was, took a horde of people up the hill, and there happened to be a rattlesnake that went inside the meditation hall, which is sort of interesting, as we were outside. Um, but unlikely, but there's plenty of metaphorical snakes that uh, will cause distress. And I'm going to speak to some of those. So um, there's a list uh, from one particular, t- it's in actually many different teachings, where the Buddha points to some of the, um, the, uh, these tendencies of mind that obscure a sense of uh, well-being and, and, and very much uh, uh, influence the meditation, thus, thus making it harder to, to be present. But they're really tendencies that happen in life and so I want to speak to some of these because they certainly came up in the groups today and come up in, in, in your meditation. And they are the habit of the wanting mind, uh, particularly oriented towards sense pleasure, uh, aversion and resistance, restlessness, doubt, and dullness. And so if you are experiencing, so anybody experiencing any of those things? Right, you're in good company. Right, that's part of what we work with, um, and um, and through that, again, that alchemical process, we can transform. We can learn a lot about ourselves and life. 
So with, with anything that's arising in our meditation, aside from the primary thing we might be focusing on, like breath or body or sounds or feelings, um, the practice, um, the, what, what these what are sometimes referred to as hindrances, I don't particularly like that translation, um, I prefer the word tendencies, habits of mind, whenever these, these surface, whether it's the wanting, resistance, etc., um, they're only hindrances into the extent that we're unaware of them. As soon as we bring mindful awareness to them, they're, they're then the next thing, the next object, the next experience to be present for and to work with skillfully. So, and with any habit and tendency of mind, we want to know whether both either the presence or the absence of them and how they come into existence and how they pass away. So anything that's problematic, challenging for you, or supportive and, and, and fruitful for you, we want to understand when they're present, when they're absent, how does, how does fear arise? What makes it pass away? How does joy arise? What makes that uh, disappear? So we want to see the causal nature of experience. We want to see its impermanent nature and we want to see its universal nature. These, as, as shown by the, the show of hands, right? these things happen to all of us. So one of the first thing, things that happen uh, on retreat, the first of these tendencies, is doubt. Anybody had some doubt these last few days? What am I doing here? What's the point? Why breath? What do these people know? Who are these people? Who are these teachers? They're going on and on. So the doubt, what am I doing here? One student once said, um, I'd rather be at work, <laughs> which I thought was telling. Another one said, you know, I came to Spirit Rock, I could have gone to Napa Valley and be in a spa sipping Chardonnay, and I'm here with my knee pain. Like, what, what was that about? This, this tendency came to the Buddha, as it comes to all of us. The Buddha was just a human being like us. On the night of his enlightenment, that thought arose as it can for us. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to be sitting at spirit rock while the world's burning up and suffering? Who do you think you are thinking you can meditate, looking also spiritual with your nice pashmina shawl? Self-doubt. You think you can do this? You've got such a crazy mind, you'll never get anywhere. This This is the doubting mind. Often masquerading not so masquerading, but in the guise of as the inner critic, the self-judging mind, the self-critical mind, the negative, disparaging, uh, whining voice that's telling you about your faults and your problems and your foibles and your deficiencies. And when we listen to that voice and when we give it attention and when we give it power and when we believe it, we suffer greatly as many people were speaking to today, the, when we listen to that negative voice, which is a kind of a form of doubt, we suffer. And so please be mindful of that negative, habitual, distorted self-perception. It's a point of view that is inaccurate. And so when it arises, you can say, thank you, Mrs. Critic, Mr. Critic. Thank you for your point of view. I'm going to go back to my practice now. Thank you for your opinion. I'm going to go back to following my breath now. It's just a point of view. 
This is from a cartoon strip I love. It uh, rhymes with orange, very good uh, cartoonist. It's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. And there's all these different pictures of uh, this person looking in the mirror. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive embarrassing moments that occurred years ago. These are popular meditation pastimes. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them, like in the walking when someone's looking really spiritual over there. Think about the people you regularly disappoint, especially those who share your last name, and disregard compliments from people who love you, and on it goes, right? Just the many ways that we can make ourselves miserable. Think about all the things left undone in our lives all the people that we've upset. So, um, with all of these hindrances, as we bring awareness to them, they be just, as I said, become the next thing to attend to. So we notice, oh, thinking, we notice, oh, doubting, oh, judging. Judging is like this, thinking is like this. Notice it, we let it go, we shift our attention somewhere else. We can learn to Trust the goodness of our practice. Trust the goodness of your intention to be here. Not in needing to be perfect or have f- figured out this life or meditation, but trusting in your, the good intention to be here, to grow, to learn, to understand. And as we name, the power of mindfulness to recognize and name experience is very potent. As soon as we name, oh, then now, now I'm caught in the mind stream of doubt, it's like bursting a bubble and we disidentify. Mindfulness creates a space in which we're not so longer consumed by something. Doesn't mean it goes away, doesn't mean it stops. The critic, just because you notice you have a judging mind, as you may have noticed, doesn't stop, <laughs> doesn't go away, sometimes it gets louder. Listen to me, I know what's best. But the naming of it, the seeing of it, allows a disidentification, and that's the freedom. And we can see clearly allows the spaciousness to be non-engaged with it. And in the context of your retreat practice, when the doubting mind's coming, you know, often it manifests as, well, it's 5.15, it's Wednesday, I'm not enlightened, I can barely focus on two breaths, I think this is a failure, I'm going to go home. Right? And I'm sure a few of you have had plenty of driving home fantasies. Some people find themselves sitting in the car with a suitcase packed and like, oh God, I'll go back to my room and I'll try again. You know, so... So over time, doubt becomes replaced by confidence in yourself, confidence in your capacity, confidence in the goodness of your heart. One of the next uh, ripples that come out of this uh, doubting critical mind, and that leads to another uh, common hindrance here, is, um, is restlessness, restlessness and anxiety, agitation, mental agitation, physical, uh, discomfort and dis-ease. And um, again, anybody feel restless here? Anybody feel like they want to run out and scream or do something or make something happen? Or Right, yes. Well, you're, not, you're in the right place. You know, I mentioned this phrase, um, when, when Insight Meditation Society first started out, which is a sister center to this place in, in, in Massachusetts, 
um, they got a letter addressing, addressed to the center of the instant meditation society. We live in a culture, particularly with apps, where we want instant meditation, not insight meditation. We want it to be figured out in day one at minute 10, because that's what it does on my app. So come on, people. Um, we feel restlessness because there's tremendous lack of stimulation here. I mean, there's actually plenty of stimulation, but not the kind we're used to. And so we get bored, we get restless. Um, I don't know if this is true, but I I have heard this phrase quoted that the average person today experiences as much information in one day as people did a century ago, as people did in a whole lifetime who lived a century ago. Before the age of, you just think how much stimulation you take in through email, through the internet, through media. You know, it's tremendous. And no wonder we feel overwhelmed and distracted. Um, And then we come here and suddenly there's a complete void of stimulation, except these rather droll Dharma talks. Uh, This is like the highlight, the entertainment for the day. And I say, well, okay, it's not quite Instagram, but I guess I'll listen for a few minutes. And um, and then again, to look at the causes. Why do I feel restless? Maybe because I'm not able to just be comfortable in my own skin. Maybe it's hard to sit with my physical pain. Maybe because my energy is imbalanced. Maybe often because of what's going on in our mind. Our mind whips us up into frenzy of panic and fear and drama and distress. Or we reminisce and we have regrets. And so we feel uh, agitation or we feel dis-ease. This line from Mark Twain, who probably never actually said it, but he's often quoted as saying it, I am an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never really happened. Right? A lot of agitation comes from expecting the catastrophe mind. Right? As you know, we've you know, a little bit of twinge in the back and suddenly we're thinking we're going to be you know, let out on a stretcher you know, into the emergency room. Right? We catastrophize, we, we, we elevate the drama. So um, restlessness is an imbalance of energy, both physical and mental. We need to bring calm and ease to the system. We can attune to the stillness of the land here, the stillness of the air in the evening. We can, we can sense the earth element through our body, through our thighs, feet, legs. We can feel the soothing, calming quality of the out-breath. We can take longer out-breaths. So one of the things that this teaching points to is we're not just observing our experience, we're also applying antidotes. Too much energy, imbalance restlessness, we bring calm. Too little energy, too dull, we bring energy up with breath, with standing up, with uh, reflecting on our motivation, etc. Um, and nature, I would say, is probably the, the most uh, supportive quality for soothing and calming restlessness. If you're feeling agitated and restless in here, maybe go sit outside and you just feel listening to the frogs uh, chirping, whatever, doing chirping, croaking. Um, Croaking sounds like they're dying, so I'm not sure that's, anyhow. um, You know, feel the breeze on your skin, feel the the, the grasses sway, and, and let yourself feel some, the calmness of nature, the calmness of the land here. It's a beautiful, poem, part of a poem from uh, Wendell Berry says, um, 
when I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may become, as in the futurizing mind, I go outside and lie down where the wood drake rests his quiet beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. Come into the presence of wild things who do not tax themselves with forethought of future catastrophe. I come into the presence of day blind stars waiting with their light and for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So if you're feeling troubled and anxious, restless, distressed in some way, you know, please, if it's a resource for you, it's not for everybody, for, for most people, go outside, take a walk, sit outside, feel the stillness, the beauty, the, the perfection of nature. So another common arising, perhaps the most common of these um, disturbances or hindrances is uh, when we experience anything unpleasant in our experience, without awareness, there's a knee-jerk reactivity, aversion, resistance, avoidance, hatred, judgment, rejection, fear, anger, hostility, and that's just to the pain in our knee. Or maybe it's to the person who happens to have congestion issues next to us and breathes rather loudly. And we're doing loving kindness, and wishing all beings well, but will you shut up, person? Uh, may you be happy, but I'm gonna kill you if you keep fidgeting and moving your whatever. Okay, it's a little exaggeration, but we can feel that way. I mean, I've definitely, I had a three-month retreat with someone who had very intense nasal issues. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. I wouldn't have sat anywhere near them if I'd known. <laughs> and it was really hard. I was sitting at the front of the hall and... <sighs> oh, Darth Vader has arrived on the retreat. Great. <laughs> May you be happy. May the light be with you. May you go to another universe somewhere and be happy. <laughs> may, I f may, I f may my homicidal feelings calm down. <clears throat> so, you know, and, and of course, in, on retreats, things exaggerate the most smallest things you wouldn't even notice in your life, like someone breathing or fidgeting or, you know, I'm, whatever else that you're finding irritating, the lighting or I mean, who knows what, the signs on the notice board. We, we, we can flare quite easily. And what's powerful about that, retreats and meditation are microcosms of life. Even though it seems very petty that you don't like the way somebody has 17 pillows on their Zabaton cushion for whatever reason, or the color of their socks, or the fact that they come in late, or who knows what, they bang the bathroom door, um, that suddenly becomes writ large as a, as a, as a, you know, as a, you know, big experience. And then we see how easily the mind is reactive, how it gets caught in negativity, judgment, blame, anger, rejection, making people other, or well, those people, those people who come late, and those people who 
you know, get seconds, and those people who, whatever our story is, right? And we see the slightest, most simple thing can breed really intense, negative, reactive, painful states. And if we extrapolate the, the micro to the macro, that's how wars happen. That's how religious hatred happens. That's how race, racism and violence and discrimination and prejudice happen. Those seeds lie within all of our minds and without mindfulness, they very easily erupt into something as simple but as violent as road rage. Or as you shouting at somebody in a moment of fury or hurt and you say things that you regret for a lifetime. So it behooves us to do this work of attending to how does this, you know, maybe I'm a relatively placid, you know, agreeable person, but at times I can really get angry and flash. I can get hot tempered. I want to understand that process because when I'm consumed in that, suffering follows for myself, for others, for the world. In England, they have these things called Leylandi Wars. There's Leylandi trees that people use as hedges. You don't need to know what, what the tree is, but and I'm probably mispronouncing it anyway, um, but they become very tall hedgerows. And there was an article in one paper, two neighbors shot each other over a dispute about the tall trees because they created too much shade in one, in one garden or the other. That's how it arises. Unpleasantness, reaction, blame, judgment, hatred, aggression. So what's powerful, as I've been saying, potent about this practice is we can, we can watch this whole process. We're sitting in meditation, everything's fine, following your breath, distracted, but mostly present. And then someone um, you know, is maybe fidgeting. Maybe they have a very sort of a nylon jacket and it's very noisy. And we, st- we, get, we start getting irritated and agitated. And why do they wear that? And shouldn't people, they managers tell people not what to wear? And we start writing notes and this whole drama, you know, where was the breath? Like for half an hour, we had this whole thing about how we're gonna get this person expelled from the retreat. <laughs> and at some point, we might wake up and go, wow, look at that. I'm like creating this whole warfare to this person who happens to, you know, maybe have an itch that they want to scratch, just like me. So we want to pay attention to the root of this is our, is our inability to tolerate an unpleasant experience. The more that we can bring awareness to this to understand, oh, when I'm not mindful and things are unpleasant, very quickly leads to not liking, not wanting, aversion, reaction, fear, rejection, etc. And so we can bring awareness to that or we can just feel, oh, and pleasant. Like right now my, my knees are aching, oh, and pleasant. They're like this. You know, or the feeling a little sweaty and hot in my body, unpleasant, like this. Not a big deal, you know. Don't like it, don't want it, here it is. We need, I need to understand that the power, the, one of the reasons for the reactivity is because we have the belief, if only I can get rid of this unpleasant thing, I'll be happy. If only this person, that person, the world, and the government, and this and that. 
if only I can eradicate my unpleasantness, I'll be happy. Not true. Just leads to a temporary cessation of reactivity. So we want to embrace our experience, pleasant and unpleasant, beautiful and challenging, with awareness, with kindness. See that that too is impermanent. That you know, just a great place to work with this is if, if you've got an itch, right? You're sitting in meditation, your face is itchy, maybe a little, you know, whatever. It's itchy, scratchy, and and it builds, and it's like, no, I'm just going to be mindful, be aware of the unpleasantness, and it feels like it's like torture. It's like you want to scream, I got a scratch, oh no. And at some point, it kind of fades away. And you're left with the peace of non-reactivity, the peace of cessation. And so play with where, where unpleasantness arises that it's manageable to work with. Feel the unpleasantness of the constriction and the reactivity. That's suffering right there. When we can tolerate that which we don't want, that which we don't like, that which is unpleasant, it means we can find peace and ease in a lot of situations in life because the world is not going to conform to our desires for pleasure. It is as it is. If we can find peace in the midst of the difficult, we can find freedom wherever we are. The opposite of that is the wanting mind. The, 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 the longing for pleasurable experience, the longing for sensual, sensory pleasure. Right? Maybe right now you're longing for the talk to be over because it's dinner time or some other experience. How many desires have you had on this retreat? Right? A lot. Right? Desires aren't a problem. It's human to have desires. You know, you desire to stretch your legs, to have some food, to go outside, take a walk, to rest, to have some tea, you know, to have you know, meaningful livelihood and, and a comfortable home and, and healthy relationships. There's many, many healthy, wholesome desires. Desire in itself is not a problem. But that tendency, that reaching, longing, wanting, gnawing, craving, grasping, attaching, clinging, holding on, demanding, that becomes problematic. That becomes a source of unhappiness and pain. And so, so, it's, so we bring mindfulness to see how a simple desire, like, oh, it'd be nice to have a cup of coffee, to, damn it, they don't serve coffee. Why the hell they don't serve coffee? I'm going to drive to the next town to get some coffee. I can't wait to leave the retreat and get my cappuccino, you know. Or we steal someone's coffee because there's a bunch of coffee in there. And there's all this thing called dana. I'm not sure what that is, but I'll just, there seems to be lots, lots of dana. So I'll just take this coffee. Um, dana means generosity, actually. That is for you to take. But anyhow, unless you call dana, then you've got a problem. But, um, uh, right? So we see how that simple desire, harmless, natural, when we're convinced again that belief, if I have this experience, this pleasant moment, I will be happy, then we can get into all kinds of problems because we get into tunnel vision. I must have this. I need it. I want it. I deserve it. And think of all the suffering that's been created by people being consumed by thinking and believing they need something to be happy and do anything to get it at whatever cost. Whether that's a multinational company 
destroying the rainforest to grab more oil resources in the Amazon, or whether it's uh, somebody acting out sexually in in a monogamous relationship, or just the innumerable ways that we hurt each other by our uh, demand for pleasure and this uh, pleasant experience. So, um, so again, we can bring mindfulness to this tendency. A friend of mine was teaching a retreat many, many years ago at uh, Sister Center IMS, and he was sleeping above the kitchen. He was on staff, and he had this all this ruckus in the kitchen. He went down to the kitchen. There's all these people kind of making food in the middle of the night. And he goes into the fridge because the fridge light was walking fridge light. And this guy has his hand in the dates. And, and my friend says, uh, "Can I help you?" And the guy says, oh, "I'm looking for the maintenance department." As in, you know, he's busted and he's trying to find an excuse to why he's, you know. <laughs> a friend of mine was on a retreat at the same place, was hating it. He walked three miles down the road to the nearest village to buy donuts. And three miles, this is like in the midwinter in Massachusetts, like it's cold, sleeting snow. Six miles to get donuts. He got six donuts, he ate them all at once, glugged them down with Coke, and then felt really sick. And then felt really sh- a lot of shame because he knew better that, you know, pleasant moment, pleasant experience, right? Gets us to do weird things like, you know, eat six donuts in sitting in a graveyard in Massachusetts in the winter, swigging down with Coke and feeling sick and feeling really humbled by how easily that desire takes us out of ourselves into this belief that that's going to make me have that donut. I've got to have that donut, right? So what's your donut? Like, what's that thing? Oh, I've got to have this thing. Got to have that meditation experience. Got to have that breath be like super calm. Got to have like the shawl and, you know. So it's powerful. The world moves on this movement of desire, wanting, craving, right? The Buddha said the, the, when we can see through the power of the craving mind, and the craving mind is both wanting and, and rejecting, wanting pleasant and rejecting unpleasant experience. When we can overcome, when we can release and see through that force, we can find profound peace in this moment, in this life. But when, we belie- when we're caught in that belief and consumed by that desire, no peace is happiness, no peace is possible. My teacher in India, Punjaji, used to say, the thief, the chief of peace, the thief of peace is the desire for the transient. One of the reasons that that desire mechanism is so flawed is because we seek experience that is inherently, inevitably impermanent. Think of the most amazing, best things you've ever had in your life. Where are they? They're gone, they're past, they're impermanent, they pass. Not to say we can't enjoy beautiful things, nature, each other, life. Kiss the joy as it flies, Blake says. Appreciate it and let it go. Appreciate that one square of chocolate, don't down two bars and feel sick. Appreciate the beauty that arises in a meditation or exquisite moment looking at a tree, but don't take the tree home or the rock home or whatever it was that was causing that experience. and have compassion for ourselves. We live in a consumer desire-ridden society. We're told this is the, this is the vehicle for happiness. And you're here because it doesn't work. If it worked, the richest people with the most stuff 
would, would, be hap- would be high on the happiness index. They are not high on the happiness index. Very clear. Wealthy societies often don't feature high on the gross national happiness index. So we see these movements, we see the longing, wanting, craving, we see the painfulness of being caught in that belief system. The seeing of it, the seeing the longing, wanting, desire, that in itself is freeing because as soon as we see, whether it's the aversion and resistance or the grasping and wanting, it, it slightly unhooks the trance of it and we can soften, we can release, we can let go a little. That's the peace that we're seeking for, not in the object, but in the wise, skillful relationship to what's happening. This is from the Buddha. He said, whoever in the world overcomes this craving so hard to transcend will find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. So I'm aware I'm over time here, so I'm going to wrap up the last, the last tendency, um, but which of course I'm naming five, there are many, many more. Thinking is perhaps the most common hindrance in the different ways that it uh, manifests through these other hindrances. The last hindrance being dullness, sleepiness, uh, resistance um, that many of you reported yesterday and, and some of you today. Um, I just uh, want to give you the good news that energy grows over time on retreat. It can seem very like molasses in the first day, even the second day, but over time energy picks up, mind brightens, body wakens, and again, whatever is happening, whatever, whatever these tendencies, whether it's grasping mind, resistance and aversion, restlessness, doubt, fear, sleepiness, as we hold them in awareness with a kind, curious attention, they cease to become obstructions in the mind, they become the vehicle through which we understand and awaken. So, Thank you for your practice in doing this hard work, right? This is hard work, this is good work, and you are all growing through this process. Whether you know it or not, you are. And you will look back on this retreat, it's hard to see in the middle of it, you will look back on this retreat and you will see, oh, that was really fruitful. I may not choose to do it again, but it was really fruitful. I learned a lot, I understood a lot, I developed qualities of of attention, Uh, I learned something about mindfulness and kindness and non-reactivity and perhaps ways to find ease in the midst of any experience. And that's liberating. These tools that you learn here, transformational for your life. And there's the bell. Thank you for your attention. Let's go uh, and... um, Appreciate the good work of the cooks and uh, enjoy your practice. Thank you.